Uh, let me add my welcome to Callum's. Good to see you. Good to be together to hear God's word. Uh, we're going to read it again uh, just now, uh, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 9. So why don't you turn there, and we'll read from verse 51 in just a few seconds. Luke chapter 9, we'll read from verse 51. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, your son said that the church's commission is to make disciples who obey everything that Christ your son commanded and sent the Spirit who enables our obedience too. So please help us learn Christ's teaching and by the power of the Holy Spirit, put it into practice. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I wonder if you're the kind of person who reads small print. You know, when you get to an end of an online form, like a mobile phone contract or something like that, you see the little box that says, have you read the terms and conditions? Hi, of course I have. No, maybe you do. Maybe you love a bit of small print. Uh, maybe you're a skimmer of small print. Maybe you completely ignore uh, small print. Small print hides the less appealing aspects of whatever it is you're signing up to. Uh, like a friend of mine, it's like 15 years ago now when they used to offer, I don't know if you get it anymore, but when they used to sign you up for mobile phone contracts with the promise of 200 pounds cash back. Do you still get this? Maybe you do. Uh, my friend signed up for this thinking, this is great, I get 200 quid off my, off my mobile phone contract. After six months, just waited for that check to drop through the door and it clearly didn't. And it wasn't until month seven that he got in touch. And then after uh, a, a whole month of trying, month eight, he realized that in the small print it said that he is the one who is to write and apply for it. It doesn't just drop automatically. A failure on his part. He didn't read the small print. Well, there's no small print when it comes to following Jesus. All the good stuff is laid out in size 16 font, but so is all the demanding stuff. The hard stuff, the kind of thing that makes a person who is considering following Jesus go, oh, okay, this takes a little bit more consideration. Like following Christ is wonderful. It is the best and the, the, the thing you must do in life. But the bare fact of what we read in our Bibles is that discipleship is demanding. Following Jesus is costly. Like costly is actually a, a word that Jesus himself used to describe what following him is like. And I can give you some scenarios about what that's like. We could all stand up and take a turn to offer some ways in which we find following Jesus hard. But let me give you a couple of scenarios. Prasun. Prasun is finding it costly to follow Jesus. Colleagues at work have been spreading rumors about him behind his back. He's been open about his faith ever since he joined the team, and he's, he's made his faith in Christ no secret. But two people in his office have actually made it their ambition to either get him fired or make him resign. He's bigoted, his colleagues say, judgmental, secretly spiteful, thinks we're all going to hell, and we're good people. There is no place in this office for someone who believes what he believes. Now, Prasoon is hurt. Going to work is hard. Loving them as Jesus requires is, to him, very hard. D but discipleship is demanding. Love your enemies, he says. Pray for those who persecute you. Discipleship is demanding. 
Debbie's finding discipleship demanding too. She's in sixth year at school. Two years ago, she became a Christian. She got baptized. She ascended church regularly at first. And she loved the singing. She loved the friendliness of the people around her. And uh, she, she loved the hope of the gospel. Eternal life in heaven. Who would not want that? But four months ago, Josh, her old boyfriend and childhood sweetheart, got in touch. They've been friends since they were wee. And they've been hanging out a lot. And she likes him a lot. But he doesn't like her going to church. She's not a believer. And she only comes when he's got something else on. She does a one-to-one with a girl called, uh, an older woman in the church called Anne, who's taken her under her wing. She sees them together in town and brings it up next time they meet up for coffee. And Debbie opens up about her dilemma. I want to follow Jesus, but Josh is very special to me. We grew up together. Anne replies, it really is Jesus or Josh. Discipleship is demanding. It's in the big print. What about us? In what ways do we find following Jesus hard? Maybe we've forgotten that he said that it would be at times. Well, the good thing is Luke 9, 51 to 62 is just one of many passages that remind us that it is costly. And uh, we can read that just now. Let's turn there to Luke chapter 9. And we'll read from verse 51 through to 62. And here is what God's word says. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Amen. This is God's word. Well, let me walk you through this passage in two points. Uh, mercy is demanded, that's number one, and commitment is demanded. Uh, let's go to number one, verses 51 to 56. Mercy is demanded. Mercy is demanded whenever you experience rejection, as Jesus did. As verse 51 tells us that Jesus was set it, resolutely set out for Jerusalem, uh, a saying that captures, as Callum mentioned earlier, all of that Isaiah 50 section in one sentence. He's taken a direct route south from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria. And so in verse 52, he's sending messengers on ahead as he often did to get ready, get things ready. Remember, there's a good crowd of people following him at this point. So it takes a bit of forward planning. Samaria provides a layover on his way to use the language of Isaiah 50 to 
give his face in Jerusalem to scorn and to spit. But the Samaritans rejected Jesus. Uh, Why is that? Well, Jesus had certainly made some friends in Samaria, so that makes their rejection of him a little bit odd. Jesus had spoken with and about Samaritans with, with, with really kind of incomparable kindness and compassion. And the woman at the well in John 4, that place of Sychar, and the people who came to faith through Jesus Christ's uh, ministry there, is, are, they are evidence of that. So how come they're rejecting, they're rejecting Jesus now? Well, the answer's in the text. Jerusalem. If his face was set toward Jerusalem, he wasn't welcome in Samaria. Why not? Well, because Samaritans hated Jerusalem. Uh, there's a backstory to this. The long story short is 700 years prior to this, when the northern part of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, the conquered Israelites ended up taking Assyrian wives and took their gods as well, and by doing so, broke God's law. Those belonging to the southern kingdom called them traitors, half-breeds, and had no dealings with them, is exactly what the women at the well said. So when we find Jesus hiking through the same region, now called Samaria, in Luke 9, he does so against the backdrop of essentially 700 years worth of sectarianism. Ah, off to Jerusalem, are you? Yeah, no vacancies here. And because of this rejection, the disciples then demand judgment. Verse 54, James and John clearly rankled, say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, they're not just ill-tempered men. They actually know their Bibles well. Uh, Fire fell years ago in this very northern kingdom when a king called Ahaziah sent three groups of 50 men and their captain to go and arrest a, a prophet called Elijah. Um, this king, Ahaziah, did not like what Elijah was saying about him and about his people, so decided to have him executed. But, so he, he went to get him, but Elijah said, verse 10 if I, of, of that chapter, if I, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And what happened? Fire fell, proving he was who he claimed to be. So when the Samaritans, on this very same turf, reject Jesus, the capital P prophet, James and John are like, should we call an airstrike? Now? Now. Surely. But Jesus says no. Jesus turns and rebukes his disciple because mercy is demanded when it's a day of salvation, like today. So verse 55, he rebukes them. Of course, the disciples are right to be indignant. Let's not be, I know Jesus rebukes them, but too many care too little about the honor of Jesus. But of course, his rebuke tells us that they need to temper it. Why? Well, they're too trigger happy about judgment. They're too quick to just let people face it. The judgment of God, like presume. Prasoon's daydreams, remember the guy in the office having a hard time? Prasoon's daydreams flip between tearing strips off these liars in his office in a way that brings them abject shame and embarrassment and staying silent, quietly humored by the fact that his sealed lips seal their 
judgment. I'm not going to tell him about Jesus, he thinks to himself. He sits back in his chair and imagines an eternity seeing from across the chasm the terror on their faces as they see the smugness on his. Now that's wrong. But have you ever wished that kind of thing on people who've hurt you? Who've been injurious and hurtful towards you because of your faith? People who've been particularly mean with their words, with their rejection, with their actions. How does Jesus respond? He rebukes them and he'd do the same with us because today is a day of salvation. Every day in which Jesus does not return for us is. One day he will, but if he has not, it's, it's a day to obey Christ by proclaiming the gospel to the undeserving, even people who want to reject us. It's a day to love our enemies. It's a day to hope in the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who opens blind eyes and makes enemies not just friends, but brothers and sisters, as he's done with each and every one of us. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there is good news wrapped up in this, of course, for you. Today is a day of salvation. It's a day when God still rescues. So you can actually turn to the Lord, no matter what you've done in your past, and you can be saved today. The Samaritans, maybe you're a bit like them, for all your life, you've not made any room for Jesus at all. You've not made room for him as a savior. Maybe it's based on some old prejudices about him or about Christianity or about God. Maybe it's to do with something completely different. In any case, don't do the same. Don't stick with that rejection, but see him. And receive this opportunity that you have even now as you hear the good news of the gospel preached to respond to it. God's word tells us actually that in the book of Acts, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus had taken place and Jesus sent his church, these disciples, out to be his witnesses, these people in Samaria actually had a second chance to hear the gospel. And guess who was preaching? John. One of the guys who was like, shall we call in the airstrike? So the one who was once angry and judgmental and was happy to consign these people to an eternal hell had a chance later to go and tell them the, the news by which they could be saved. But please don't presume on the same. If you reject Jesus, even tonight, if you're rolling your eyes at this or sick to death of your friend telling you about Jesus, maybe, maybe you won't have another opportunity. You don't know. Maybe in God's judgment, he'll make your friend stop telling you or move away and deliver you over to what you want, which is a life without him. Well, the consequence of that choice is horrendous because then you'll still be in your sins and you'll still be under his judgment. But the good news of this gospel that we harp on about all the time is that Jesus died on a cross to take that judgment on himself and that forgiveness of sins can be ours if we believe in him, that he died and rose again for our sins and that he can give us life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, what about us though? Those who already know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and for whom the cross and the resurrection are really the most important thing to us in our lives. If work is hard, 
if family life is difficult, if friends at school are downright horrible because you believe what Jesus says, hang in there. God is blessing you. Luke chapter 6 verse 22 tells us it's in the big print. You don't have to call down fire. Even in your heart, don't let it turn to hate. Instead, Luke 6, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Discipleship is demanding. It's in the big print. Well, mercy is the first thing that's demanded of disciples, but the second is commitment. Commitment. That's what we see in verses 56 to 62. And that's what we learn from these interactions that Jesus has with three would-be followers. Look with me, verse 57 and 58. The first, through the first follower, we read that following Jesus guarantees no earthly, uh, no earthly comfort. The first man promises Jesus unreserved commitment. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that's what Debbie had said when she first believed in Jesus. Whatever it takes, Lord, wherever, wherever you want to take me, whatever you want, I'm, I'll do it. And that's the kind of thing we like to see, of course. People giving their lives to follow Jesus. Believers giving their lives to serve Jesus. Total commitment. But how did Jesus reply? Well, Jesus makes sure the guy knows what exactly he's signing up for. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He says, I'm not promising you an easy life. He said, I am actually the Son of Man of Daniel 7, but there are nights when I go without a bed because people turn me away. So does your wherever, when you say I'll follow you wherever you go, include the uncomfortable places, the place where you don't even have a pillow, the place where you don't have a chance to even have a lie down. Well, following Jesus may mean depriving yourself of some of the most basic creature comforts because foxes, they've got their dens, holes in the ground and caves, and the birds have their nests, but the one who has authority, glory, majesty, and sovereign power doesn't even have that each night. Now, that will make the person who thinks that discipleship is a breeze apply the brakes and pause and consider their commitment. That's the first guy. Following Jesus guarantees no earthly comfort. That's part of the commitment that we sign up to when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing in 59 and 60 is that following Jesus means getting your priorities straight. The second man here is actually invited by Jesus to follow him. He's done this before with Levi, of course. But the man says he's something to do first. Verse 59, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now that sounds fair enough. I can't think of any better to delay anything than to deal with a family death. Drop everything. And let the man grieve. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm sorry for your loss, join me tomorrow, does he? Verse 60, Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Now, why does he say that? It sounds insensitive. I mean, if the man's wearing a black tie and a black suit, you're like, that's really not a very kind thing to say. But in all likelihoods, reading between the lines, the man's dad isn't dead. Uh, He may be nearing the end, or this would-be disciple in some way wants to delay following Jesus, and this is the likely thing, until he receives his family inheritance. It's actually a phrase, let me bury my father, is still a common phrase in the Middle East. And it means to wait until they can dignify the father's death and receive the family estate. In any case, Jesus commands something much more important than even a family burial. Gospel proclamation. What's more important than dealing with a family death? Following Jesus. That's quite a strong statement to make. What's more important than dealing with a family death? Proclaiming the gospel that brings life. What's worth giving up your inheritance for? What must not be put on hold for any reason? Following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel was, of course, Christ's priority. Not one thing deterred him from that. We saw even earlier on in Luke's gospel, the time when Jesus was healing people in Capernaum. People were bringing their sick to him all the time. And he said, we have to go somewhere else. He was doing a great work there, meeting many people's physical needs. But he said, we have to go to the other towns. I have to preach there also, for that is why I came. He underlined exactly what it was he came to do, to proclaim this kingdom of God. Because the proclamation of the kingdom of God, what it is and how to enter it, is the means by which God saves sinners. Now, Jesus not only made that his priority, he made it the priority of every single one of those who would call themselves disciples of his. Nothing is more important, not honorable family matters, and especially not the prospect of an inheritance that you want to wait ages for and delay following Jesus for. That's why Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. The spiritually dead will do what the spiritually dead thinks needs to be done according to their own priorities. But if you really think that following me is the best and the most important thing that you can do right now, you go and do what makes the spiritually dead live and proclaim the kingdom of God because time is running out for everybody else. I wonder if you see yourself in that second person. I wonder if you sometimes, like me, think, oh man, my priorities are really all wrong. When was the last time I had the chance to share the gospel with someone? Why am I letting these other things, even church ministries and events, get in the way of me spending time having dinner with a friend who's shown even a a a kind of mid-level range of interest, and yet I'm putting it off for other things? But how many times do we do it in preference for the desires that we have? Just for a bit of peace. A bit of peace and quiet. Just a bit of me time. We're not even talking about some kind of family inheritance or estate here. We're just talking about a night of peace. But if when we call him Lord, and we say, first, let me, as this guy does, then we've got our priorities all wrong. Because if he really is Lord, 
Not only is obedience required, but the alignment of our priorities too. That goes for us as individual disciples, and actually that goes for us collectively as a body of Christ disciples too. His priorities first, never second. To follow in Jesus means getting our priorities straight. That's part of what it means to commit ourselves to following him. The first guy needed to know what he was signing up for. The second to get his priorities straight. The final guy, well, he needed to forget what is behind. The third man promises to follow Jesus. But here's another but first. Verse 61. I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And again, sounds reasonable. There's nothing awkward in that, you wouldn't think. It's hard to leave one's loved ones behind for any reason. Plus... There's a biblical precedent. When Elijah, the prophet I mentioned earlier, called Elisha, his successor, to become a prophet, Elijah, Elisha, sorry, asked Elijah for the very same thing. Let me just go back and kiss my family goodbye. So Elisha went back and chopped up his plow because he had been farming, he'd been plowing his land. He sliced and diced his cattle and had a massive going away barbecue for his family and then went caught up with Elijah and was in his service. And it sounds like this third guy is proposing something very similar. He could actually go, look, 1 Kings 19, I've got a verse. First, let me go and say goodbye to my family. But Jesus' reply suggests that he, Jesus, detects something more than wishing to say a fond farewell. Jesus detects hesitancy. And Jesus warns him then of the danger of hesitancy uncertainty. Verse 62, look with me. Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the ser- for service in the kingdom of God. Now, that's a great illustration. If a farmer employs you to be a plowman, and instead of letting you drive a tractor, decides we're going to do it old school, we're going to have a plow and we're going to have some oxen, right? And if you go out to the fields and you plow his fields badly because you're basically driving the oxen like that, looking over your shoulder, what will the farmer conclude? Well, one, you're an umpty, but two, you're not fit to be a plowman. You're not serving in the way that you've been employed to serve, and it's absolutely useless. And the same is true for those who follow Jesus. If we say we want to follow Jesus, but we're always looking back over our shoulder at the life we've left behind. We will not be fit to be Christ's disciple. He is worthy, friends, of our total focused commitment, our total and complete devotion. He's worth more than all we've left behind. And we will be useless in his service We'll be half-hearted in our commitment. We'll be quick to bail when hardship comes. And we'll be useless at compelling people to believe and be saved because we're not quite convinced enough ourselves. This is Debbie's struggle. Remember the girl I was talking about the sixth year at the start of the service uh, sermon? She's already made a decision to follow Jesus. But her teenage sweetheart Josh's interest is making her look back with longing to all the fun that they had before and she's questioning she's counting the cost now 
weighing up the choice she's made. But it's a no-brainer. Following Christ, learning and obeying the teachings of Jesus, being employed in his service in something that brings eternal good should involve no wavering, no uncertainty, and no hesitancy. We must be so convinced that following him is the right and the best thing to do, even if it means leaving loved ones behind or an old life behind. We should do that gladly. Now, it sounds hard, and it absolutely is at times. Discipleship is demanding. But as Jesus said elsewhere, in response to a question of Peter or statement, really, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come. So while it's true to say discipleship is demanding, it is unbelievably and unmistakably worth it. And again, if you're here tonight and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I hope you've not missed the main point of this, that following Jesus is demanding. There's no small print. That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that people aren't saying, yeah, come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven. Life's going to be a breeze. It's going to be like a cruise liner. It's definitely not. Life is not like that. It's all in the big print. Following Jesus is demanding, and it's costly, as the word Jesus used. But did you notice, even from these three folks, in this little section, what Luke, the writer of this gospel, did not tell you? So we've got two people who say, I'll follow you, Jesus, and one guy that Jesus invites to follow him. They've got three separate problems, three separate issues, and Jesus throws something back at them. But what do we find next? Nothing. You don't actually see how they responded. We don't know if they actually became followers of Jesus or if they turned and went back to their old life. We don't know if they went, yeah, this is too costly, I'm tapping out. Or if they said, Jesus, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, I'm in. Like Levi did when he just up and left his fortune behind as a tax collector. But I think... When Luke doesn't tell us how these men respond, I think it leaves us asking, how might I respond to Jesus? And that's what I want you to think about tonight. Jesus calls you to leave your life of sin and to leave your old life where your priorities and your alignment is completely the opposite of what it is to follow him as your Lord and Savior, to submit to him as your king and put yourself in his service. It's wonderful. Every member in this church here tonight that you could talk to would say, this is a no-brainer. There's, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. It's the best thing I ever did. That's true for me. I lived a life in my teenage years of drug addiction. You could exchange a billion of the highest cocaine hits for Jesus, and I, I would not exchange it. You could offer that, and I would not exchange it. There's nothing like it. 
follow him, respond to him. But if uh, you are here tonight and you are a believer, brothers and sisters, there is, I think, a double application in this section for us. One for us as we make disciples and one for us simply as disciples, Christ learners. Firstly, when we make disciples, I want to appeal to you to see what Jesus does here and see that when we share the gospel with those who don't know Christ, are we ourselves clear about the cost of following Jesus? I think it's one of the ways that we protect the church against false conversions. And the folks who would say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but bail at the first sign of trouble, I guess just like Jesus did when he told us the parable of the soils. Worry, cares, persecution can really make a person who has not counted the cost throw in the towel. And we can minimize the likelihood of that by being really clear about the costliness of following Jesus up front. We don't need to be worried about that. Jesus did it. And we should do the same. So that's for us in our evangelism. Be clear about that. But secondly, as followers of Christ, it's good to be reminded, isn't it, that following Jesus is demanded. That if you're finding following Jesus hard, then that's all right. It's a normal experience for a Christian. Like you might look around and think everybody's coasting. Everybody's having a great time. It's like they've got slippers on or they're skipping through life having an absolute great time. Well, everybody's finding discipleship hard in one way or another. It's hard to see people's struggles with sin. It's hard to see what people are struggling with behind the scenes in regard to family life or working life or whatever. Past. There are so many different things that can seem to just trip people up and makes the whole walk and journey of discipleship like wading through treacle. So maybe you're feeling it keenly today that discipleship is demanding. Part of the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, is that just the regular thing of like what we're experiencing in life or is there some responsibility on our part as well? Because it can be easy to falter in our discipleship and for us to stall because we're being laggy. Because we are not simply exercising the means of grace that God has given us to keep us sharp and to keep a spring in our step, or at least to give us energy like Christ does to keep our face set on the new heaven and new earth and taking one step after another. Listen, the same things that threaten to hinder those who might follow Jesus threaten those who do currently. So could faltering discipleship be put down to an overattachment to lifestyle, personal ambitions, families? Now, those things might not make us out and out reject Jesus, but they will impact on our commitment to share the gospel with others to make being a church in partnership as a family together our priority, all those things will become secondary if Jesus is just a badge of discipleship and church is just an event on a Sunday. Now is a good time to press the reset button on our discipleship and to call to mind that though he guarantees no comfort, serving him sacrificially in every way that he demands is absolutely the right and the best thing to do and it's worth it. 
that though he demands priority in our lives, and that means putting everything else second, putting him first is absolutely and undeniably worth it, even if it's hard. And though he employs us now, you know, whatever we leave behind to do his will, it's totally worth it and should leave you with no regrets whatsoever. He died for us that we might live not for ourselves, but for him. So following Christ is demanding. It's not in the small print, it's in the big print. Mercy is demanded of those who follow Jesus. Commitment is demanded of those who follow Jesus. How glad I am, and I hope you will be too, that we can praise God for giving us grace for both so that we can labor with all his energy, which so powerfully works in us. Let's pray. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Lord, please May the seed of your word now sown among us take such deep root that whether it's the burning heat of difficulty or anything else that wouldn't cause it to wither or the thorny cares of this life choke us into forgetfulness, but may it as seed sown in good ground bring forth a harvest, the kind your heavenly wisdom has appointed. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, the demands of discipleship are real, but so is his help. And we can glory in his kindness in our closing song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ. Amen.